I, I noticed a phenomenon. In my many years of ministry, um, there, there came this one time where I noticed this really interesting phenomenon. And it happened because I was trying to gather my team at the time and talk to each of them, get feedback about how we can do something better in our ministry. And so what I did was I approached each of my team members, there was about seven of them, with the exact same question. And I approached them in the exact same way. I, I went to each person and I said, hey, can I talk to you about something? You know, I'm, I'm a pretty jovial guy, right? Like when I ask that, it's not scary, right? You know, some people, they ask that question, it's pretty scary. But the interesting thing was, the phenomenon was, when I asked that question to each person, each person responded and reacted so differently. And so I asked one person, I'm like, hey, can I talk to you about something? They'd be like, sure, Not, nothing about it. Approach another person, hey, can I talk to you about something? And they like do a little nervous chuckle, like, <laughs> okay, but they seem reluctant. I, I approach another person, can I talk to you about something? He's like, yeah, probably thought he was getting promoted. He wasn't. Went to another person, can I talk to you about something? The first thing they say is, am I in trouble? Like, what did I do wrong? And it was interesting that there was a spectrum of responses and reactions to the very same question that I asked in the very same way across the board. And what it tells me is this truth that you may have heard that we don't see things as they are. We see things as we are. In other words, we see the world through our past experiences, through our trauma, through our brokenness. There's this show I'm watching on HBO Max called The Staircase, and it's about this... um, pretty much about this trial, murder trial. And one of the medical examiners gets asked this question in the show. She gets asked, do you believe in objectivity? And as a medical examiner, she says, no. And this is what she says, Dr. Deborah L. Radish. She says, the only way we get close to objectivity is by recognizing how subjective we are. We see the world through our past experiences. The only way to get close to objectivity is to realize it doesn't exist. Listen, you'll find when you get married or you're in a relationship, you'll find that you think you're objective, but you aren't, okay? We are not objective. As much as we'd like to believe we are, we are colored by our past through our experiences. And I think one of the greatest tragedies in the church today is that so many people live crippled by their past and they don't even know it. They don't realize how their history affects their relationships in the present, unaware of how their past impacts their right now. And part of the journey towards spiritually, um, emotionally healthy spirituality is recognizing, acknowledging, and breaking free from the power of the past that holds us back. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, the thing we have to understand is that although many external forces impact us as we're growing up, one of the most powerful systems that shape and influence who we are today is our family of origin, how we grew up. In in other words, God chose to birth us into a particular family in a particular place at a particular moment in time. And our family of origin, the beautiful thing is they offer us um, opportunities and blessings, right? Some of the things that you might have shared. But we also have to acknowledge that our family of origin also hands us difficulties and unhealthy patterns of brokenness and living. And I think what happens in the church is we tend to minimize the impact our family has had on us. We say things like, oh, no, brother, God has redeemed my story. (laughs) Or we say things like, sister, God took what was meant for evil and he, he turned it for my good without actually dealing with the brokenness of our past 
and our family history. And in doing so, we settle for less than God has for us, keeping ourselves stuck spiritually and emotionally. And we come to a place where we realize, man, all the Bible studies in the world, all the prayer and all the fasting, all the community group sessions, all the Stephen Furtick sermons on repeat on YouTube playlists won't completely heal the emotional wounds of my past. And so today we're going to talk about how we need to go back in order to move forward. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I pray as we navigate through some of our difficult, traumatic, and painful pasts, that we actually do cling to the truth that you turn all things that were meant for our harm and turn it for good. But I pray it wouldn't be a shallow declaration or belief in that promise. But it, it requires us to actually do work. It requires us to look back and see in our family history, what are some of the things that are of you and not of you? And navigate what kind of legacy we want to build, what we want to pass on to the generations to come. So I pray today as we go back that none of us would get stuck in the past, but that we would come forward. It would help us come forward and move forward in a healthy way. We love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, when we think of the word family, we may think of our parents or our siblings. Um, I know none of us have kids here except me, so maybe some of your fur babies. I know a lot of people here have cats and dogs and stuff like that. But the biblical writers had a different understanding of the word family than we do. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, whenever one talks about one's family, it's not just to a couple and their children. What they're talking about is the entire extended family ranging back three or four generations. And so when the Bible talks about family, they're talking about generations, at least three to four. And to give you an idea of what that looks like for us, um, that looks like it would include your family dating all the way back to the late 1800s, right? For us, three to four generations, that's what that looks like. And scripture shows us that the blessings of one generation are often passed on to the next generation. Well, God makes a promise to Abraham. If we look at Genesis 12, 1 through 3, this is what God promises Abraham. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And we see this promise extending to Abraham's son Isaac and then to Isaac's son Jacob. It was a promise. It was a blessing that was passed on from generation to generation. You know, we were talking about with Jerry, we were talking about what are some of the things that are passed down in our family. And Jerry was talking about their love for cooking, how their family is always in the kitchen together. I was like, that's beautiful. I want secretly, I I desire Zion to be a master chef junior um, so that when he gets a little older, we could reap the benefits of that. He'll always cook for us. But I was thinking about what are the things that we've passed in our family. And I think one thing that I could think of is this devotion to God. My grandfather sold all of his possessions, moved my entire family out here to America to pastor at a church. And that's the kind of devotion for God that they had. My dad just graduated. I guess in the Korean church, you could graduate from eldership. So like he, um, he had this ceremony this past Sunday. It was like a huge deal where he's been serving as an elder for decades. And now he gets flowers and a medal or something, and he's graduated, I guess, right? And there's this devotion for God, this passion for God that's been passed down from generation to generation. The blessings of one generation pass on to the next. But scripture also teaches us that the consequences of actions and decisions taken in one generation affect the generations that follow. In Exodus 25 to 6, 
God is speaking to the Israelites. He says, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, I always read this and it felt off to me. Like, how fair is it, God, that you would punish a generation because of parents' sins or that, that I could do something wrong and it would affect my kids? But we shouldn't misinterpret this to mean that God will punish you because of your parents' sin. That's not what the author is getting at. Actually, a more appropriate translation of the, word, the Hebrew word punish would be to be repeated. In other words, more likely than not, what happens in one generation tends to repeat itself in the next, especially when it's not dealt with. Right, Whether it's alcoholism or addiction or depression or suicide, unstable marriages, infidelities, mistrust of authority or unresolved conflict, history tends to repeat itself when it's not acknowledged, addressed, or dealt with. And so in other words, you might have heard this phrase, hurt people hurt people. And when we don't deal with our hurts, what God's saying is he's not going to punish our our children or the generations that come because of our hurt, but history tends to repeat itself when we don't deal with that hurt. Maybe you can think already of how that's affected your family. Examples, a child who witnesses toxic conflict between their parents ends up only knowing how to resolve conflict in that way, and so ends up resolving conflict in their relationships in unhealthy ways. Victims of abuse often end up becoming abusers or witnesses of abuse in the family household end up in similar environments again and again where they're abused, where the cycle tends to repeat itself. Alcohol and drug addiction statistically seem to repeat themselves throughout generations within a family. And so family patterns from the past play out in our present relationships, whether we realize it or not. And so, so many of us, we like leave our homes and we're like determined to break free from our family histories only to find that our family's way of doing life follows us wherever we go if we don't deal with it. How many of us vowed never, you know, as an angsty teenager, I vowed, I'm never going to be like you, dad, right? We all have had that experience, most of us had, where I vow I'm never going to be like this or never going to be like them. And we like to believe that as adults, we're so much further along than our parents were or healthier than our parents. But unless we put in the work, we continue living out the unhealthy patterns that we've experienced growing up. And that's not to say that our parents are flawed or bad. They're just human. And it's just human nature. It's brokenness that we've encountered growing up in our entire lives. I remember when um, growing up, my, my father was working a lot. And I told this story often, but he was rarely ever home. He went to work at 5 a.m., usually got back at 10 p.m. Because he just wanted to provide for our family. That was his way of loving us. And I remember I was hurt by that growing up because I would look out the window and I'd see, like, the typical American family, a dad throwing a football to his son. Good catch, son. And I would be like, I wish I had that. And I remember growing up with this bitterness and this resentment. And when I turned 22, I had this moment where I sat down with my dad. And I said, Dad, you've really hurt me. I wish you were more present growing up. But I know you tried your best. Uh, But I just need to let you know how you've hurt me. And I'll never forget what my dad told me. He looked into my eyes and said, I'm so sorry. I never knew how to father because I never felt like I was fathered. My dad was always pastoring. He was always busy at church, and so he was never present with me. And so I didn't know how to be present with you. So I only loved you the way that I knew how, which is to try to get as much money and resources to you as I possibly could. 
And I, I think about this a lot because what's passed down from one generation often continues to repeat itself until there's a moment where we say, I want to do something differently, right? Examples of generational sin and brokenness in the Bible that gets passed from generation to generation. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we just talked about how the blessings were passed down. But there's also a lot of brokenness that was passed down too. Um, it's not up there, but Genesis 12, 10 through 13, it's, it tells a story that there was a famine in the land and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. And this is what the scripture says. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. So say that you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. This actually happens twice in Abraham's life, another time in Genesis 20. So he tells his wife, I'm going to tell everybody, we're going to lie to everybody that you're my sister so that I'm okay, so that I'm not harmed. Not even, he's not even thinking about his wife. He's thinking about himself. Self-preservation and fear causes him to lie. And what's interesting is what happens in Genesis 26. Isaac's now a grown man. Isaac now has a wife. And this is what scripture says, Genesis 26. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Because he was afraid to say she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is beautiful. The exact same lie from one father to a son. And check this out. Where do you think Isaac learned this from? From his dad. If we go to Genesis 25, Jacob, who comes after Isaac, deceives his father. We all know the famous story. He deceives his dad, ends up stealing the birthright from his brother Esau. This pattern of lying and deception out of fear and self-preservation continues to perpetuate throughout the generations because it was never dealt with. Another example in the Bible, David, Solomon, and Rehoboam. David takes many wives and commits adultery with Bathsheba. We know this story. Solomon, he took 700 wives, 700 wives and 300 concubines. I don't even know how, it's just, I don't get it. And then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes 18 wives and 60 concubines, right? There's this history of objectifying women, of polygamy that continues throughout the generations. See, we carry both the good and the bad of our past into the present and oftentimes into the future. Pete Scazzaro, who writes on this, he, he has this quote. He says, Jesus may live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. What's he saying? Those who precede us in our family tree cast a long shadow, even generations after they're gone. And so we're often living in the aftermath, in the shadow of the generations that have come before us. Y'all listening to New Kendrick this week? Yeah. Kendrick Lamar released a new album called Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers and Actually, it's a master class on what we're talking about. He's talking about generational pain and trauma, talking about therapy, talking about brokenness that's inherited from one generation to the next. And there's this one song on the album, my favorite cut on the album is called Father Time, where he actually, he dives deep into this idea that our family of origin plays a huge part in the people that we become. And verse two, I, I'm just going to read it for you. Actually, maybe I'll wrap it for you. It's just so good. He goes, I got daddy issues. That's on me. Looking for I love you, rarely empathizing for my relief. A child that grew accustomed, jumping up when I scraped my knee. 
Because if I cried about it, he surely tell me not to be weak. Daddy issues, hid my emotions, never expressed myself. Men should never show feelings. Being sensitive never helped. His mama died. I asked him, why he going back to work so soon? His first reply, son, that's life. The bill's got no silver spoon. Daddy issues, F everybody. Go get your money, son. Protect yourself. Trust nobody. Only your mama and them. They made relationships seem cloudy, never attached to none. So if you took some likings around me, I might reject the love. So good. What's Kendrick getting at? What is he talking about? He's saying our family of origin has a huge impact on who we are today, on who we grow up to be. And it's the responsibility of every disciple of Jesus to look at the brokenness and sin of the generations that have come before them and realign to God's heart. Now, some of you may be feeling this tension as I'm talking, especially if you grew up in an Asian household. In my house, it was just taboo to talk about the problems of your family. Like the worst thing you could do is dishonor your family by spilling your tea to anyone outside of the family. And so we would conceal our brokenness and we would we'd cover them and mask them. And some of you may be feeling this tension that digging into our family's history, um, you're going to expose and dishonor your parents and your family members. But hear me, church, honoring your parents doesn't mean ignoring the sin or the brokenness of their lives and how it's impacted you. Actually, honoring them is building off the foundation that they have laid, brokenness, weaknesses, imperfections, and all, and working to do better, right? My dad came to me, and he told me, I tried my best, and I know my dad tried his best. He, he fathered me the only way that he knew how, but it's not dishonoring for me to say, I honor the best that you've tried, but I want more for my future generations. I honor everything you've done, and I want to learn from that, but I also recognize these are the ways that you've fallen short that I want to try to do better for my son. That's the way we honor. When we hide and we conceal, we're actually dishonoring the work of generations. You know, Krista and I, we joke all the time about how we already started a savings account for Zion's future therapy bills, and, um, you know, because PKs, right? And so... We know that as hard as we may try, as good as our intentions may be, we will hurt our son. We will disappoint him. We will fail him at times. We will fail to care for him well. And not because we're terrible people, but because we're human. We're broken. We too have been hurt. And honestly, I'm just trying not to screw up my son that badly, right? So that's why we're, we're talking seriously about when he's growing up, we want to have create places and spaces where he can have healthy dialogue about us, about the ways that we've hurt him so that he doesn't carry our brokenness into his children and his children's children. So the question then is, I know all this is a lot to deal with, but how do we break free from the power of our past? How do we go about doing this? And I think scripture offers us a three-part framework for how that we could break free from the power of our past. And this is how it is. The three things. Number one, identify how the blessings and sins of your family impact who you are today. Right? How do the blessings and the sins of your family impact who you are today? Number two is to own it and take responsibility. This is my family. These are the blessings and the sins of our generation. These are the ways I'm perpetuating it. And the third is to repent of the broken patterns of your family and learn how to live life the way God intends. I'm going to go a little deeper into this and give you some tools to help you. Number one, identify how the blessings and sins of your family impact who you are today. 
How many of you know that true spirituality frees you to live in the present? But it requires us to go back in order to move forward. And one way to do that is through what's known as a genogram. Have you ever heard of a genogram? Anyone in here ever done it? Okay, it's, it's really cool, but it takes a lot of work, okay? I'm going to explain what it is. A genogram is a visual tool that helps us look at the history and dynamics of our family relationships and their impact on us over three to four generations. And so it helps us examine unhealthy patterns from the past that we bring into our relationship with God and others in the present. Um, Astronauts have this thing that's known as the overview effect, that when astronauts are leaving Earth's atmosphere and they're looking back on the Earth, getting further and further away away from it, they, they experience what's called the overview effect, where all of a sudden they realize the planet that I've been living on that seems larger than life seems just like a tiny, fragile ball of life. And all of a sudden there's this new perspective that they enter into now going away from Earth, seeing it holistically. And for us, the genogram can be that. And using a genogram as a tool, we're able to step back and experience the overview effect, seeing our entire family, seeing our entire generations, our entire lives in an entirely new and holistic way. And so this is what it might look like. I have an example, and we're going to give you tools. Actually, actually, go to the next page first. If you go to 99.church slash EHS, and this will be in your email on Instagram, um, we're actually going to give you a workbook and videos to help you create your own family genogram. I just started this weekend, and it's hard. I realize how much about my family I actually don't know. And so it requires us to talk to our parents, talk to family members to see some of the relational dynamics. If you go back to the other slide, this is what it could look like. And you can see it's pretty much building your family tree, but you're inserting different patterns, different symbols that show some of the relationship dynamics, some of the brokenness, as well as some of the good things that happen between your relatives. And so, for example, the squiggly lines up there indicate that there is a fracture in their relationship. It was a broken relationship. The two dots there show divorce. Um, the, the dotted lines here, I think, are um, people that live together that aren't married but, are, but have stayed together for a long time. So these aren't inherently bad or good. This is just the reality of your family dynamics. I think there's another one that shows abuse. And so there are, we pretty much map out our family tree, and we indicate and write like how the dynamics were, some of the things that have carried on throughout generations. And it's cool because as people do this, they start to see patterns, that, oh my God, in my family, this has been prevalent. And, that's, and people see it unfold in their own lives. And as we're doing this, some questions that we can consider that you can find in the workbook, so you don't have to write this down. Some questions that we're going to ask. How would you describe your parents and your grandparents' marriages? How was conflict handled in your family? What are some recurring generational themes like affairs, divorce, abuse, depression, etc.? How well did your family talk about feelings? Are there any family secrets? How was money handled? How did your family's ethnicity, race, or culture shape you? Who are the heroes in your family, and who are the black sheep, and why? Why is that so? What trauma has your family suffered? And what are some of our family commandments? How many of you know that each of our families have commandments that they live by, whether it's unconsciously or consciously? Actually, there's a a slide right here that shows an example of some of the commandments that are unspoken in our family. For example, under the, the topic of conflict, some of our families, the unspoken rule or commandment is avoid conflict at all costs. And so we're just going to be passive aggressive to each other. We're not actually going to talk about what 
is actually true. For some of us about sex in our family, the commandment is sex is not to be spoken about publicly. And so, you know, I never got the sex talk growing up because this is true in my family. You don't talk about sex. You don't talk about those things. Uh, Maybe in family, you owe your parents for all they've done for you. Some of us, we've grown up in a culture where this was the unspoken commandment or rule. And so as we do our genogram, we start to see some of the commandments, some of the underlying rules, some of the scripts that we've inherited, whether we realize it or not. Now, pause. Some of you may be thinking you're hearing all this and it's a great sermon for the rest of y'all in here, but my family's good. My family's great. We love each other. We never experienced no trauma growing up. And you know what? I just want to tell you, amen. You don't have to go digging up something that might not be there. You don't have to try to make, make up. Okay, I'm going to tell this story. I have a friend, and we were part of, like, a discipleship group. But I, at the time, I was, like, 25. He was, like, 16, turning 17. And we did this exercise where we talked about some of the stuff that we're struggling with at the current moment. And so people were talking about, man, I just feel like I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm addicted to alcohol and porn. That's just something I'm dealing with right now. Another person was talking about, I just have this compulsive lying habit. Like, people are talking and spilling their guts, and then this this one guy, 16, 17, comes up to us. He's like, he, he, I could tell he couldn't think of anything. So the first thing that came to mind is like, yeah, I just, I've just been drinking way too much. Way too much water. And all of us are like, okay. It's like, yeah, I know it's not good. It's just too much hydration every day. He's like, sometimes I look in the mirror and, and I say, you're bad. And we're like, we're like trying to take it serious because he's like, really trying but he was trying to pull at something that wasn't there and so this is not that like if you can't if there isn't if your family was good and you can't really think of brokenness or if you resolved it there's no nig- there's no need to dig up something that's not there but i do want to encourage you to look deeper that there may be things even though your, your relationship with your family is great maybe there are, are small things that have affected you or maybe it hasn't really affected you but it's good to address nonetheless Nonetheless, there's something powerful about identifying patterns we've seen in our family and how they impact us today. And so you'll actually get a chance, if you want to do the work, to do your genogram at home. Um, We have a workbook, some videos that you could find at 99.church slash EHS, and I really encourage you guys to do it. And even if um, some of you are on therapy, I think this is a cool thing to do with your therapist if you are open to it, right? And then Chris and I can help you as well. Actually, I, I still got to do mine, so maybe hold off on asking me. Number two, own it and take responsibility. This isn't about blame shifting. This isn't about giving you ammo to come to your parents with or your grandparents with or your siblings or your aunts and uncles and say, this is how you failed us. This is how you've broken us. The point is that we take responsibility for our family's brokenness, not shift the blame. And even if it was something done to you, it's saying, God, but you've placed me in this family and I'm going to take responsibility for the entire family so that I can do better for my family to come with my life, with my children and their children's children, instead of perpetuating the cycle of brokenness so that we can make a change. We have to come face to face with the reality of our brokenness, own it and take responsibility. That's not to say that you take responsibility for the abuse perpetrated against you, but it's saying that this is all part of the story that you're building, that you're writing with our family. And I want to do something better with the generations to come. And the last thing, repent of the broken patterns of your family of origin and learn how to live life the way God intends. How many of you know that God doesn't erase our past? He redeems it.
In other words, he doesn't call you to forget about your past. He actually redeems the story of your past. You know, it took God one day to deliver the Israelites from Egypt, but it took him 40 years to get the Egypt out of the Israelites, right? That is, even though God delivered them in a single moment from Egypt, the broken values and the lifestyle of slavery in Egypt went with them. And it took 40 years for God to remove that from inside of them. In other words, salvation takes a moment, but transformation and healing may take a lifetime. And so even though God saved us, man, that's actually when the work begins. Where we say, God, you've saved me so that I can do something better. So that I can live the way that you've called me to live. And it's the slow journey of letting go of the pain we've been living in. It's the daily grind of identifying, owning, and repenting of the broken patterns of living that we've adopted. And the beautiful thing is this, God invites us into this redemptive work. We have the power and the authority in Jesus to break the cycles of pain and brokenness seen in our families generations previous. To say addiction stops here and will not continue down the line in my family. To say abuse stops now and will not be perpetuated any longer. It's living a different way. For one thing, we never talked about our feelings growing up, which is why I am a 35-year-old man who is very emotionally stunted, unable to tap into what I'm feeling at any given moment. But I've made a decision that every day, every time I'm inclined to go back into the shell of what I once knew, I'm going to lean into the opposite. And for my children, I want Zion to be really well in touch with his emotions. I want him to be emotionally healthy. I don't want him to grow up the way that I did. And so I'm choosing, it's going to stop now, and I'm going to live a different way, the way that God intended me to live. In other words, we get a say in what's passed down to the next generation. We also get a say in what's not passed down to the next generation. We have the power and authority, but it takes the work of identifying, owning, and repenting of those things. But hear me, church, going back in order to move forward is something that God calls us to do in the context of community. This includes mature friends. Notice I said mature friends, right? Mentors, spiritual directors, pastors, counselors, or therapists. On that page, uh, 99.church slash EHS, we actually also have our network that was curated from people that are in the field of Christian therapists in the Bay Area And sometimes it's asking people to walk along with you in the journey. Um, Pete Scazzaro calls it learning to be alone together, right? Learning to navigate personal issues in the context of community. In other words, we need trusted people in our lives to ask us the hard questions. And maybe this might be a wake-up call for you. Do you have people in your life where you can just ask them point blank, how do you experience me? Like, Tell me how you feel when you're around me. Like, what are some of the things that you notice or feel? What are your thoughts when you're with me? And please be honest with me. I think many of us, we haven't actually entered into situations or atmospheres where we can do that openly. But it's so powerful. And so, number one, we have to identify and acknowledge. Number two, we have to own and take responsibility. Number three, repent and live differently. But all this to say God's heart is to create a beautiful future out of your broken past. Look at the life of Joseph, and I think this captures it the most. As a 17-year-old boy, 
Joseph gets sold into slavery. He loses his family, his home, his culture, and his freedom. He lives 13 years as a slave and then as a prisoner. Yet look what he says to his brothers, the same ones that harmed him, left him for dead, threw him into slavery. Look what he says to them in Genesis 50, 20. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And this wasn't a shallow response. This was him navigating years and years, wrestling with God. Why has all this crap happened to me? Why have I been mistaken again, 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 confused, misunderstood, thrown into prison, becoming a slave? Why, God, navigating the hard questions and coming finally on the other side saying, oh, you in- everything was intended for harm, but you used it for my good. This wasn't a shallow response. He sat with this for decades, and he resolved with God, and he began to see on the other side. Now he is second in command over all of Egypt. He recognized that God was able to take the brokenness of his past and redeem it into something beautiful. Chris and I, we actually uh, got a new car because we're thinking about ex- expanding our family this year, and you know, gas is so expensive, so we wanted something electric. And um, one of the car salesmen, it's, it's actually kind of a sad story, but he was like severely like mistreated there. Like we noticed, like all the his managers were like treating him bad, and so yeah, like I, I he was driving me like from a cafe to another place because they were doing something with a car, and I was just asking him like man, like, what's going on with your managers? Like, why do they suck so much? And he just has such a good heart. He's like, oh, no, they're just having an off day. Or actually, that, that guy's actually really nice. He just seems hard on the exterior. And I just, I just encouraged him. I was like, you were the best part of our experience here. I want you to know that. But anyway, that's not the story. He was actually telling me the history of, we got a Volvo. He was telling me the history of Volvo. And it just spoke to me. I was like, God's speaking to me right now. Because he loves his car company. He's, he knows the history of it. And I don't know if you know, but before when cars were being developed here in America, um, before seatbelts existed, um, there was a lot of deaths and accidents on the road that, that uh, ended up in fatalities. And so Volvo actually, they created the first patent for the seatbelt that we know as today. Like the seatbelts that, it's all thanks to Volvo. And they actually had a choice where they could either um, patent it for themselves and then license it out to other car companies. But they decided that it was so important for people to have this that they gave it out for free to all the other car companies. Super anti-capitalistic, right? Super against the era of our day. But the reason why he did that, he was telling me this, was that one of the founders of Volvo, his wife had actually passed away in a car accident. And so this brokenness, this like dark family history, that, that the shared trauma of losing someone in your family actually resulted in something beautiful. Now you and I are safe in our cars because of the brokenness he endured. That's not to say that this was God's will that he experienced that heartache. But what God does is he takes the pain and the brokenness of our past and he makes something beautiful out of it in the future. Walter Brueggemann, he says, the, I know Volvo, right? Of all places, God's speaking through Volvo. Let's go. Walter Brueggemann, he's a theologian. He says, the evil plans of human folks do not defeat God's purpose. Instead, they unwittingly become ways in which God's plan is further. Hear me, church. God has been at work in your life even before you took your first breath. He wants to take your broken past and he wants to make a beautiful future out of it. God wastes nothing. Not a painful moment, not a single tear, no trauma, no brokenness, no failure, no sin. He takes all that was meant to harm us and destroy us and he turns it for good. 
He takes our broken past and he creates a beautiful future. And so for some of you, this might seem overwhelming. Like, oh my God, there's so much, so many issues in my family. And I'm even thinking about my family thinking the same thing. It's a lot to navigate. But this is the hope that God takes what's broken and painful and traumatic in our family history and he creates something beautiful. I have faith that every single one of us here today, as, as the best, our parents, they tried their best. Our families, they tried their best. But I believe that you're going to take all of that and you're going to do something good and better for your future families. That, and that's the hope, right? From generation to generation, from glory to glory. And maybe our shortcomings 30 years from now, there will be, your kids will be in a church service where the pastor is talking about generational sin and brokenness. And they're thinking, man, my dad and my mom, they tried their best. They hurt me. But I'm going to take all that, and I'm going to even do better than they did. That's the hope. That's the vision. That is the dream. There's an old Hadistic rabbi that actually spoke this quote, and maybe you've heard it before. But he said, they don't know who it was, but they know it was some rabbi. When I was young, I set out to change the world. When I grew a little older, I perceived that this was too ambitious. So I set out to change my state. This too, I realized as I grew older, was too ambitious, so I set out to change my town. When I realized I could not even do this, I tried to change my family. Now, as an old man, I know that I should have started by changing myself. If I had started with myself, maybe then I would have succeeded in changing my family, the town, or even the state, and who knows, maybe even the world. I think Christians, we kind of have this uh, crusader mentality where we got we to gotta save the world for Jesus. And we live completely unhealthy, broken lives with this grand mission of like changing a nation or taking California for Jesus. But how much more powerful or effective would our witness be if we just started with ourselves and saying, these are the brokenness, these are the the traces of sin and brokenness in my life. And if I could just fix that, if I could work on that and be the person that God's called us to be, called me to be, how much more of a witness can I share in my workplace, in my neighborhood, in my state? That's where it starts from, starts from within ourselves. So I want to conclude our time. Once again, I want to plug the website, 99.church slash EHS. If you want to try it, take a stab at this, at doing your genogram, really encourage you to try it. Um, I'm going to be doing that as well. So if you want to talk through someone, talk about it with someone, you can with us. Um, But I want to end this time by doing an exercise known as a prayer picture. So I want us to close our eyes. In her book, The Inner Compass, Author Margaret Silf offers a powerful prayer picture. And I want you, we, we talked about this two years ago, the power of imaginative prayer. And so as I'm sharing these descriptive things, I want you to actually picture this in your mind's eye. Picture this. And I believe this is what God has for us today. Imagine yourself standing on the banks of a wide, flowing river. You have to cross, but you notice that there's no bridge. And you notice that Jesus comes carrying a large stone and he places it in the river right in front of you. He then invites you to step onto it. And so you do. And every day, one by one, he brings another stone and then another and another. And you step from one stone to the next, moving further out into the water every day. One day, however, you find yourself in the middle of a river. 
with the water rushing all around you, and you notice that no new stones appear. When you can't move forward, you feel a wave of panic. You start to feel anxious, and you look backward to the shore, thinking, maybe I need to go back. But at that moment, you realize where all of the stones are coming from. Jesus has been systematically dismantling the cottage on the shore behind you, the place where you used to dwell, the person that you used to be, the place in the past where you've lived your entire life. And he's turning it one stone at a time into stepping stones for your future. So you take a deep breath and you wait for God. And when your heart is still, he quietly places the next stone in front of you. He invites you to take yet another step across the fast-moving river. And you realize now he will always bring one more stone, just one at a time from your past, and use it to nudge you forward. You realize you can trust him as he continues to take the stones from your past and use them to lead you into a good future. God, I thank you that nothing is wasted. Some of us have been through really traumatic things. Some of us have experienced real brokenness in our past. And first of all, I just want to say we know that it wasn't you. Your will, your heart wasn't for these things to happen. But as they happen, your heart becomes increasingly clear. You want to take what was meant to take us out. You want to take what was meant for our harm, for our evil, and turn it for our good. And so this season, I just see this image of you taking apart our past. And it's not you erasing it, but it's you bringing the stones of our past so that we can continue to step forward. So God, as we navigate this, as we navigate through our family histories of brokenness, but also of blessings and victories, I pray that we would have that overview effect that astronauts have had. We would see our entire lives, not just in the scope of who we are right now in 2022 in San Francisco, but we would see our lives in the scope of the generations that have come before us and the generations that will come after us. And we will say, I want to play a part in writing your redemptive story in my family family line in the generations to come. You never waste a single hurt. You never drop a single tear. You use it all for our good. So God, give us the courage. Give us the community. Give us the tools to navigate this together. We love you, God.